I want to ask uh, if you could uh, just think about your favorite sports team. And to give you a little hint, take a look at this. Here we go. Now I want you to think about something that's happening tomorrow night. And to give you another hint, look at this. So Sunday night, an estimated crowd of 50 million people will be watching this game. Considering that the last time the Pats and the Chiefs met, it was one heaven of a game. Super close, an epic battle. All these people coming together, even in opposing fan bases, both bonds them together and builds bridges across the divides of race, class, culture, and nationality. This bonding and bridging of people like this is an essential part of the underpinning of a healthy and free society. Now, I'm getting really serious about this. But this Sunday night event that some of us will be watching tomorrow night, it bucks a trend that's been going on in America over the last 50 years or so, what one writer calls bowling alone. Used to be back, you know, 50, uh, 70 years ago, there were all these bowling leagues. I, I was once part of one when I was in my teens. I was, on the, I was a substitute bowler on the post office league. And the sorters would go after the handlers and the letter carriers and so on. We used to bowl at Lincoln Lanes. And the reason why we bowled there was because the guys wanted to have a bar nearby, and that was the only lanes that had a bar. But in any event... But this guy writes, uh, Robert Putnam writes this in this book, Bowling Alone. For the first two-thirds of the 20th century, a powerful trend bore Americans into ever deeper engagement in the life of their communities. Deep connections among social networks developed norms of reciprocity and trustworthiness. This trend increased in the U.S. until the 1970s, and then really suddenly, it began to decrease right up until the present. This change is consistent across a number of measures. Political participation, down. Civic involvement, down. Religious organizations, down. Workplace networks, informal connections, mutual trust, and altruism. Now, there are four exceptions to that trend. An increase in volunteerism among youth, a growth in telecommunications, grassroots activity among evangelical believers, and an increase in self-help support groups. However, these exceptions don't offset the overall trend. Indeed, by virtually every conceivable measure, social capital in America has eroded steadily and sometimes dramatically over the past four generations. So, even though so many people will be together on Sunday looking at the same thing, it's only one occasion. The rest of the time, we are more and more isolated, less and less trusting of one another, and more and more self-focused. Is it any wonder that in the last decade, it seems as if we in America are more divided than ever, since it's the result of a separating trend that's been going on for half a century? But this very same weekend in America, Something else will be happening which also bucks that trend. 
and it will involve up to 132 million people. These people will also be gathering together, bonding to one another. It will be an intergenerational group, bridging the cultural divides that form the richness of American society and reaching out to include others who are not part of it. There'll be unity in the essentials. There'll be diversity in many ways. And harmony will be developing that builds mutual trust and concern for other people. Among those people are you, participants in the Journey Church tonight. You and hundreds of millions of people around this country are involved in something which bonds, bridges, and restores community. What is it that we are all doing together this weekend? It's worship. A phenomenon that alone possesses the power to save America from itself, from its self-centered self. Why? Because in worship, the power of Jesus Christ breaks down the barriers erected by sin, including not only the personal barriers, but the social barriers that separate us from one another. It builds bridges of forgiveness and justice, and it bonds people in the purposes of God, often people who would never be connected for any other reason. And then it sends those people out to bridge and bond with others who are not part of us, and thereby to restore this society around us to help prevent its ruin. All this provided we understand what true worship really is. So tonight, we're going to take a look at a biblical definition of worship found in Psalm 122. Now, if you reach for the Bible in front of you, the book Bible, you'll find it right in the middle. Does somebody find the page that Psalm 122 is on? 440 in probably most of the editions here. You can also look it up on your phone. As we've already seen in prior weeks, it's one of the Psalms of Ascent, Ascent, going up. Fifteen psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These are worship songs found in the Bible which were originally sung by Hebrew pilgrims on their way up to the elevated city of Jerusalem or while actually ascending the steps of its temple on Mount Zion. Each of these psalms reorients us towards God just as the original pilgrims going to the temple were orienting themselves to the God who was to be worshipped in Jerusalem in that very place. Now, we're using a guide for this psalm series that we're going through. It's a book called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction, with its subtitle, Discipleship in an Instant Society. Eugene Peterson writes, There's a great market for religious experience in our world, and something people think of worship as just that. It's an experience. He writes, But there is little enthusiasm for patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what early generations of Christians called holiness. You see, holiness is what worship, as well as the other virtues that we find in these psalms, will offer to us and to the world in need of us and, more importantly, in need of him. Now, we've already looked at Psalm 120, which Pastor Tom brought to us, 
its focus was repentance, which is a changing of one's mind and heart and will from self to God. And then Psalm 121, which Pastor Paul brought to us last week, looks at providence, that essential trust in God rather than in self or in stuff or in society. Now, if you missed these talks from the last couple of weeks, you might want to check them out at the Journey website. Because what Pastor Tom and Pastor Paul talked about are essential if you're ever going to be able to worship God. In fact, in order to prepare for worship each week, I recommend you're dedicating some quiet time, either at home or when you come here and sit down in one of these seats before worship, to practice repentance and providence. Turning from your self-preoccupation to relying on the trustworthiness of God. So, let's read Psalm 122 together, either from the edition at your seat or from the screen, as we'll see, together. And notice how it focuses on God. So let's say together. I rejoiced with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citizens. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So again, this psalm is all about worship. Now it's described in the language of the days of the temple in Jerusalem. It was written in about 1000 B.C. Now, we'll see what it said about worship to those people, and then we'll draw some principles that we can apply to our engaging in worship 3,000 years later, remembering that our Lord Jesus Christ, in his life here on earth, drew inspiration from this very teaching in his practice of worship. So the first thing I want us to note as the psalm begins is that worship is an occasion for joy. We read, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now notice that when somebody said to the psalmist, hey, let's go to the house of the Lord, he didn't say, oh, all right, or do I have to, or you go and say a little prayer for me. You ever heard that from certain people? You go, say a little prayer for me. No, that isn't what he said at all. He rejoiced when he was invited to join the crowd in worship. Eugene Peterson writes this, worship is not forced. Everyone who really does so does it because they want to. Now, there are a few people who may attend church because someone else has decided that they must, but these coercions are short-lived. True Christian worship is voluntary. And as the writer suggests of the psalm, it's an occasion for joy. Worship is the most popular thing Christians do. There are more people in worship this weekend 
than in all the sports games, golf links, fish ponds, and hiking trails combined. Now, though there may be occasions when worship brings forth repentance and sorrow for sin, or when you're here and you sense the gracious presence and compassion and providence of God and it brings you to tears, that may happen, but generally, worship is a joyous occasion, as we heard about here, we've already experienced. I mean, Lou, where are you, Lou? Lou said, this is gonna be fun, and, and that's, that's actually true when we gather here. It's fun, it's fun particularly when this guy comes up and does announcements. Don't you love his announcements? Oh my God, it's wonderful. Lou, he's amazing. So there's something about it that is joyous. Why? Because it's here that we encourage one another to touch and be touched by the best person who ever was, ever is, or ever will be. The one who gave himself that we might live, who will never fail us or forsake us, never, ever, ever. Namely, we get in touch with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there is joy in that, friends. There is joy. Now, it can also be joyous, if we will put ourselves into it bodily. The psalmist says, our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Note the psalmist walking into the temple, standing on tiptoe of expectation. is kind of magnifying his joy. The same is true here when we stand to sing, when we sit to listen, and some of us might even kneel to pray. Now, others here tonight lift hands to praise. And you know what? Some of us here actually open their mouths and, wait for it, they sing. Can you believe it? They actually sing. Now, some of us here have been told by the environments we were brought in here not to draw attention to ourselves and never, ever, ever to sing. I don't care who said that to you. They lied to you. They lied to you. This is the one place where you're not drawing attention to yourself, but you're doing something that you think is kind of like a little much. You know, you're going to stand up. Uh, you might actually even lift a hand or something like that. And you might open your mouth to sing and you may say, everybody around me is going to go nuts. They're just going to say, would you shut up? No, they're going to be delighted that you're joining them in making what the Bible says is a joyful noise to God. I don't care if you can carry a tune. I don't care if you're Pavarotti. I don't care if you're like Oscar the Grouch. Just sing. It's a beautiful thing. As you do that, as you physically engage in that, open your mouth and sing. As you stand up, as you might even lift a hand or do whatever it is that you do, but let me just ask us, do more than you can do, right? Now, earlier today, I made a total fool out of myself, did I not? What for? For the sake of the pats. What are they going to be doing? Playing a football game. And you know what? Those guys, they know that that is not the most important thing in the world. Many of those guys know who the most important thing in the world is, is God. So here's the question. If you're in your house tomorrow night, and you're standing up going, yeah, 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 or you're jumping around, you know, or you're sitting there going, oh, no, oh, no, you know, whatever. The question is, would you do that for God? Would you do that for God? Would you put yourself into it? You know, if God were to say to you right now, I want you to do a little dance for me, would you get your foot moving? Would you actually start dancing for God? Would you be willing to do that? Or would you say, I, I don't do that? I don't do that. I remember a friend of mine who was a believer. He said, I don't kneel for anybody. Well, 
eventually his tune changed and he found himself on his knees before the living God. So if we can get into it and participate. You know, those of us here who may have been involved in the various recovery movements, there's a saying in the recovery movement, fake it until you make it. What that means is this, participate fully in the meeting, say the serenity prayer, say the Lord's prayer, Join in the greeting that is customary. Somebody says, hi, I'm Len, I'm an alcoholic, and the group says, hi, Len. Participate, do it, even if you don't feel like it is the advice, as if you're faking it, and eventually God's grace will come and will make it for you. And some of you here know what that's like. Some of you went to recovery meetings. You didn't want to be there, but you took the advice. You faked it, and now you've made it. Grace of God has come. Peterson writes this, we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling about God, much better than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. And many of us here have been told to be quiet during the message. When I speak, I love to get a little help out there. A little amen. Is Noel here tonight? Amen. Amen. There you go. Noel's in the amen corner. Or some people say, preach it. Or some people say, come on. I don't care. If that's something you want to do, you say it. It's an encouragement. It's something that we do together. We worship. We engage the Word of God together. So think of worship now as a little gym for spiritual exercise, which, like physical exercise, eventually will produce those joyous spiritual endorphins. So worship is an opportunity for joy. It's also a framework for living. We read in verse 3, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. Now Jerusalem as a city was designed by God to receive all these worshipers who were coming on pilgrimage. It had extra room to be able to welcome them, able to jam them in together so that the worship in the temple would be magnified by all these people, Jews coming from all over the place to worship God on pilgrimage. Likewise, we, we of Journey Church, which are part of the new Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb described in the book of Revelation, the body of Christ, the church, we are designed for worship. We're to be a gathering place for God's people whenever we meet, and we're to have room so that people can come and join us. When we say we're going to church tomorrow, It's worship that we're going to. And it's not the building. It's the people that we're joining. We're going to church because church is you. It's not this, though I understand that's what it's called. And together, in doing that, we embody a framework for living. And it's real simple. It's one and six and one and six and one and six. And it's an idea of a day of joyous rest and then six days of work. And when it comes to that day, our worship together is meant to be surrounded by that day of joyous rest so that worship can order our lives the rest of the week. So it's Sabbath and worship and Sabbath. And tonight, you having come here to experience worship, as somebody suggested, tomorrow should be a beautiful day of rest. I encourage you not to use this as an opportunity to get all the stuff done that you might have done, but you would have been here, okay? 
let this be a beautiful day of rest. Just let the snow keep you wherever you need to be or take a walk in the beauty of creation. And this worship that you're experiencing tonight will reverberate throughout tomorrow. It'll get magnified. Otherwise, it's just a little experience, a little drop in the bucket. You see, because when we gather here, the ordinary things of life, things like words and music and bread and juice and water, those ordinary things get transformed into vehicles by which we can encounter God. It reminds us that we can encounter him in the rest of the week in the ordinary stuff of our life. So we rehearse real living when we gather here in worship in the midst of this special day so that we might really live and help others to live in the majority of time we have on this earth. We learn here that life is not a bummer and then you die. Actually, life is abundant life with God and we, when worship is all over it. And this is something that we do together, this framework for living. We do it together. We read that the tribes of the Lord go up to praise the name of the Lord. All those tribes come together. There are bridges of tribal divides that the world isolates us into. And we bond with brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who will become closer to us than our blood family. Worship is a communal exercise. That's why we do this together, where you sit not just by yourself. That's why, even though some of us may be watching this on, on video, this is not the normal thing. The normal thing is that we do it together. Worship is done by you all, for you all, and through you all. That's why bonding with friends before you gather here during the service and after worship is advised as is reaching out to strangers who may be in our midst, bridging the divides that they feel in life. So worship is a framework for living. It's also an opportunity to obey. The psalmist writes that worship is done according to the statute given to Israel. On the screen we read statue. Sorry, typo. Statute. A statute is a rule or a law, or a custom that was practiced by Israel. That's what worship was done. According to the statute given to Israel, people would go up to the temple regularly in order to worship God. But it says that the statute was given to Israel. Well, who gave it? It was God. Now, aside from your parents, when you were once a child, and if they're children here, you need to obey your parents. But aside from that... God is the only one who can ask for your obedience to his commands. No boss can do that. Certainly no spouse does that, asks for obedience to commands. No, God does. And obedience to God is, as it is with children, a sign of respect and love to the one who is commanding. And so it is with God. Jesus once said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is an act of worship by which we give ourselves in love to the God who gave himself in love to us first and who loves us first and last. Now, one way we can be sure that we're obeying the Lord is as we keep holy the Sabbath day, including centering it in worship. Obedience is an act of worship, but worship is also an act of obedience. 
and joy and real living. As such, this Sabbath day was never meant to be a day of solemnity and deadliness. That was human beings that made that up. Some of us have experienced that in certain traditions of the church, including those who use it as a day to catch up on work or to prep for the next week. That's drudgery and deadliness if ever there was. No, keeping the Sabbath day holy means keeping it as the gift from God that it was meant to be for us and for the world. It's something that was established not just in religion, but in creation, that this was the way the world is designed to be. But it does involve obedience. Obedience to the call of God when he says, come, rest, come, rejoice, come, live, Come, adjust your way of life to make that obedience possible. And these are adjustments that we need to help one another to make. Some of us may need to help certain people who have just too much going on in their lives. We may need to help them with certain responsibilities. I mentioned when I last spoke, anybody here who's a single parent needs help and encouragement because there's so much to do. So maybe we can help with their children or with something in their house so that they can have that beautiful day of rest. Worship is an opportunity to obey, and I'm so glad that you have taken that opportunity tonight. And lastly, worship is a focus for life. We read verse 5. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Now, in the Bible, the word judgment doesn't mean that God kind of whacks you or he condemns you. No. The word judgment means, literally, the decisive word by which God straightens things out and puts things right. So it's a word from God, a judgment is, and it is intended not to condemn but to straighten and to set things right, including us. So the thrones of judgment mentioned here are places where God's word is put out, as Eugene Peterson writes, to put love in motion, to apply mercy, to nullify wrong, and to order goodness. Now, I hope you've noticed, the word of God is everywhere in worship when we gather here. The word of God is in the singing. It's in the praying. We hope it's in the preaching. It's in the sacraments of communion and baptism. The word of God in this place is even in the announcements, right, Lou? Word of God is there. It's all over the place. And yeah, you need to read your Bible at home and to discuss it in your family, with your friends at work, and yes, to talk about it at school. But here, the word of God is focused. And it points you back to the real focus of life. It might be a a judging word that says, I gotta get back on track with God. The word of God says of itself that it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, all of which we need in order to really live. Here, we should hear a clear word of God pointing us back to what should be the focus of our life, which is God. God is the source of life, ultimately, and so our life should focus on Him. You and I need that reminder. I know I do. That reminder that my life doesn't consist in my stuff, in my friends. My life doesn't consist in my family. It doesn't consist even in myself. 
My life consists in God alone. And you know, Peterson says that worship doesn't satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite for Him. Our need for God is not taken care of by engaging in worship. It's not like you come in here and go, boom, well, I got my God fixed this week. No, real worship will deepen your need for God. It will overflow this time that we're together. And then it will go out and permeate the week in a desire to pass along what we find here. And so, while we're here in worship, the psalm mentions that we'll pray for that peace with God, which will affect not only our personal life, but also our relationships here, one another, so that for the sake of our family and friends, we can say and show them, peace be with you. You see, as we come together and allow God to help us to worship and allow him to bridge the gap of sin between us and him and bond us with him together in peace, and then as we do that, then that begins to happen with one another. We bridge the gaps that exist between us and we begin to bond with one another and then that naturally sends us out in the world to bridge the gaps that exist between us and others and helps us to bond with them in the name of Jesus Christ. We can bridge the many barriers that exist in this culture between people all around us just as Jesus did in so loving the world that he was sent by the Father to become one of them and attempt to bond with them and us as he desires to do so that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so when we're here together, it's not that the congregation congregates and the ministers minister. It's that we all congregate to minister worship to the Lord to give him our best for his sake. The, the last verse here, rendered in Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase, says this, For the sake of the house of your God, God, I will do my very best for you. Now what we do here week by week is what worship people call liturgy. It's a word that just means the ordering of the worship gathering. Whether it be free praise or formal prayer. And in the original language, you know what it means? It means the work of the people. Some of you probably think that what you're supposed to do is just come here and receive. No. You're supposed to do the work that is done up here and out there. We work together. The work of the people in order to do the worship of God. This is our work, to worship to ship worth, not just here, but the rest of the week, to the worthy God in whatever we do, wherever we are, whoever we're with, and especially so here and now in this house of the Lord, in this new Jerusalem gathering, the people of God adorned as a bride for her husband. And so based on all that we've seen in the psalm, I'd like to draw together a little definition of worship. It'll be on the screen. Worship is an obedient response to the triune God by believers in Jesus Christ as part of their framework for living through which they indicate that He and He alone is their only focus for life and by which they experience an occasion for joy. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's what we're invited to do. But I think I can do it a little better and you can join me in saying this from Romans 12. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So let's wrap this up by reciting that psalm again, and I'm going to ask you to stand as you do that. Let's say this together, and, and, and let's kind of imagine the psalmist being just so excited. He's joyous as he says this. So join with me in joy as we read this part of God's word together. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Amen and amen. Please be seated just for one last thought. In October of last year, Eugene Peterson, who was the translator of the Message Bible, and was just a, a really remarkable human being, great Bible scholar, just a beautiful man of God. You've ever heard him talk or speak? Uh, look him up sometime and just listen to that voice. He was somebody who always wanted to be a, a teacher of Semitic languages, but the Lord called him to be a pastor, and that's what he did most of his life, but he was still an amazing teacher. And so he died. He was surrounded by his family and, and friends. As one writer said, he had completed his long obedience in the same direction. In his memoir called The Pastor, Peterson wrote, Resurrection doesn't have to do exclusively with what happens after we're buried or cremated. It does have to do with that. But first of all, it has to do with the way we live right now. We practice for our death by giving up our will to live on our own terms. Only in that relinquishment or renunciation are we able also to practice resurrection. That, my friends, is another definition of worship. Practicing death and resurrection. Yielding our dead selves to God so that we might live again, particularly so as we gather together like this. And it's really sweet that Eugene Peterson's family said that as he was dying, he said several times, let's go, let's go. He had a smile on his face. I wonder if he had in mind these words of worship from Psalm 122. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's you and I do that right now. Let's pray.